0: Well, David Helm in his commentary on 1 Peter tells a story of a Vietnam War veteran. And though I usually don't make a habit of telling other people's stories, I thought this one was especially fitting here. As the Vietnam War was drawing to a close, soldiers were returning home. They are looking for a fresh start. And Helm relates how he saw one such veteran just standing by a river every single day, Fox River in Illinois. And during the frigid winter months, this man just stood alone on the edge of the frozen riverbank, and he would tend to a group of ducks. He would feed them. He would cut holes in the ice for them. he just basically tend to their every need for the entire freezing winter every single day. He'd be out there caring for the ducks. And Helm goes on to say how he asked his dad, why, why did this man care so much about these ducks? And his, dad, his dad's reply was, was moving. I want to include this for you. His dad said, quote, This man has just returned from the war in Vietnam. And the story is that ducks saved his life. His unit has, had been ambushed. Many of his friends had been killed. And while he hadn't been shot, he laid down to look like he had. He hoped they would go away, but they didn't. The enemy kept coming, and through the fields they came, They put one more shot into every fallen man to ensure that he was dead. But suddenly a covey of ducks flew overhead and the attention of the soldiers was diverted. And their excitement they began running after the ducks to shoot at them instead. In the end, they stopped checking the field for men and left. That's how the man down by the river escaped. And now he has a special love for the ducks. He loves Because he lives. End quote. I'm sure you can immediately see the application or the applicability of this story. He loves because he lives. And though admittedly it's a little offbeat because we're talking about ducks. Nonetheless, this man developed a great love and appreciation for that which saved his life. And it's it's obvious, but I'll make the connection anyway. And should not we as Christians all the more so have a love and appreciation for God. God has saved us and he's rescued us from a much greater peril in a much greater way. He saved our souls from an eternal death by the death of his eternal son. And now by faith in that son, Christ, we can live. And so should we not then all the more so love because we live? And that's the point made in our text this morning. First 1 Peter 1:22, 1, which reads, "Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart." If you haven't already, turn with me to First Peter chapter one. So, what we're going to be looking at today—that's our verse. That's our one verse, just one verse this morning. And I know normally we move a bit faster than this, but I thought this would be a perfect opportunity to slow it down, take this in, and really apply this word from Scripture this morning. First Peter chapter one. As we're turning, let's let's talk about context first. One of the benefits of slowing down and only looking at one verse is that we have the time to pause and remember the context where we are in, in First Peter. I don't want us to get lost in the forest amidst the trees, so I want you, I want to take you back up to 10,000 feet, give you a bird's-eye view of, of what's going on in First Peter. First off, remember, Peter's writing to Christians who've been scattered in the Roman Empire. They're a persecuted minority. They're suffering. They're trying to endure as followers in Christ. And Peter writes to these people and in instructing them how to live well and suffer well for Christ. He begins, as most New Testament letters do, with the truth. He starts off with the foundational truths that the Christian message is based on. He's he's basically telling us, here's what's real. Here's what's true. Here's the reality. Here's what Christ has done for you. Here's what you have in Christ right now. Here's what you have in the future waiting for you. Because of what Christ has done, it's all these truths of our salvation. Just look at verse 3 again of chapter 1. Look how he starts it off. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So this is what we have. We've got this glorious inheritance waiting for us. He comes to you by faith in Christ. This is the foundation. He starts off by laying the foundation for what we have for our salvation, and it's the most important thing. I mean, do you know the Lord? Are you committed to Christ in a genuine trust? This is the focus of the first 12 verses in 1 Peter. It's, it's all about your future, what you have in your future, and how you get there. It's a future focus. And focusing on the future like this gives us the hope and the faith that we need to not not just survive the Christian life, but thrive in the Christian life, a future focus. That's verses 1 through 12. After that, though, after verse 12, Peter pretty much shifts gears for the rest of the letter. Other letters spend more time developing this doctrinal foundation for the Christian life. But Peter does 12 verses, and then he moves on to the practical. He wants to get to the practical, and that's what he does. This letter is a very practical letter starting at verse 13 and really continuing throughout, where he begins to expound on how to live in light of this doctrinal foundation. So he, he, he says to us in verses 1 through 12, this is what you have, and this is what your future looks like in Christ, so now what? Now what should you do? He switches gears, and now we're going to talk about the present, a present focus with present privileges, present responsibilities, how we are to live now in light of the future we have waiting for us. That's much of the rest of 1 Peter. Just a few weeks ago, we started into this practical section, but already we've seen some pivotal commands for us. Verse 15, be holy in all your behavior. Verse 17, fear God during the time of your stay on earth. And say in verse 22, we come to yet another pivotal command in the Christian life, and that's to love one another. In chapter 1, 22, all the way through chapter 2, verse 10, it's a little section where Peter reminds us of our need to love one another, our need to love God's Word, and our need to love God Himself. A lot of good stuff coming up in this next section. Today, though, I want, to, want us to now drop back down into the forest. We're just going to look at one tree, verse 22, where we see the call to love, the call to unity in the church, it's just a simple command in verse 22, love one another. That, that's it, love one another. But you have to understand how important this command is. Again, Peter is writing to Christians who are scattered, they're persecuted, they're going through trials, they're being tempted to conform to the world around them or, or to just give up, throw in the towel. It's a rough time. And in this situation, above all else, they really need to pull together. What they most need is just a community of love and unity where they can have a safe haven. Nothing could crush their spirits more than to be persecuted outside the church, than come to church and be persecuted inside the church. That's the point he's going to make. The church needs to be a safe haven for believers of love, unity. When God saves you, he doesn't save you to be alone. He saves you to be in a group, a body he calls it, the body of Christ, the church. You're saved to be in this body, and that body is to be characterized by, by love and by unity. So this command that he's giving to love one another, it's not, it's not a casual command where you can say, oh, yeah, I guess I need to work on that. That's not how it is. The identity and function of the church itself is tied up in this command. So if love is lacking from your life, it's not that you need to work on it. It's that you need to radically reform your entire life. It's that important. Verse 22 gives us the command to love one another. But As we're going to see, this command is built off of and into several other truths. And, of course, Peter shows us how this command to love is, is really tied into our salvation and based on our salvation. So what I want to do, actually, just to give you an outline of this verse, is show you four aspects of salvation that Peter mentions here, but not in and of themselves. Rather, four salvation aspects to get you to love. That's what it is. Four salvation aspects to get you to love. And that's what he does. He's tying in four aspects of our salvation in order to to get us to love one another. Four Four salvation aspects to get you to love. And this will be good enough to get us to our destination, which is this command to love one another. So let's do this. The first one is this. The first salvation aspect to get you to love is salvation status. Number one, salvation status, which is purified souls. Salvation status, purified souls. Look at verse 22 again. He says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another, from the heart, so here we start off with what happens to you at salvation, namely the purification of your souls, purification of your soul. it's It's the status change that takes place at salvation. Now imagine that you weren't born born in America, but that you wanted to become a citizen of America legally. So you move here, you live here, you start working here you take you you know fill out the application you take that class you, you do all the paperwork to become a citizen finally you're approved literally overnight your status changes from foreigner to citizen literally overnight it's not that you really change but your status changes you're now a citizen and that salvation we likewise had a status change we go from being excluded from heaven to being a Citizen of heaven. Our status changes from, from dead to alive, from unclean to clean, from defiled to pure. And it's this last one that Peter picks up on in verse 22. We become purified in our souls. Our status change, the purification of your souls. What does that mean, to have a purified soul? And what does that bring? This is just a reference to your new birth, to salvation. New birth, that's another status change where you go from being born to born again. Understand this, first things first. Understand your sin problem, or as we could say, your impurity problem. And just think about water. You you want your drinking water to be clean and clear. People go to great trouble to get clean and clear drinking water. Now imagine you've got a nice pitcher of crystal clear ice water just sitting in your fridge, someone comes along and they take just just a teaspoon of manure and they put it in your water. Would you drink it? Of course not, but I mean, look, it's just a teaspoon. It's not like they use a tablespoon. <laughs> but would you still drink it? No, you're not going to drink it. It, it. it doesn't matter how much. It's still now just anything. It's impure. You're not going to touch it. And that's how God thinks of us. Before God, every single person on the planet is impure like this. Why? It's because of sin. God's standard is perfection. He requires us to be sin-free to be in His presence in heaven, to accept us. But no person alive meets that standard. There's not a single person. That's why God must reject them. But It's really worse than that, though, because not only does sin make us impure, sin is an offense to God's holiness, so... Not only must he reject, he must judge. He has to judge sin as well. And the penalty for sin is separation from God, an eternal separation in hell. It's punishment. There's nothing you can do to change this. You can try to be a good person all you want. You're still polluted water. It's not changing anything. On your own, you have a 0% chance of saving yourself. You can't do anything about this. You're just polluted, impure water. Thankfully, though, God knew how hopeless and lost we were, so he intervened to save us. God sent his son, Christ, to earth to take on human flesh, to live a perfect life without sin, and then to die on the cross, but he didn't just die, he died to pay the penalty for your sins. Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection enables you to be clean and to be pure before God. And what you must do now, according to the Bible, to receive this cleansing, it's the only way, it's to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. It's put your faith in Him, your trust, where you follow Him, you look to Him as your Savior and your Lord, you obey Him, you go where He goes, you give Him your life. That's faith in Christ. And if you do this, God then changes your status. Like we said earlier, you go from being lost to found, condemned to saved, impure to pure. It's a status change. God reckons you as pure. He thinks of you as being now pure in Christ. First Peter one twenty two, purified in spirit. That's what we're talking about here. This is what we all need if we are to stand before God. It's an internal cleansing. It doesn't matter if, if you didn't shower today and maybe you're a little dirty. It doesn't matter. God's not looking on the outside. He's looking on the inside for an internal purity, a cleanness of heart. Only He can bring it about. That's why we have to access it through faith. God must do this work. Just listen to this. Listen along. Exodus 36, verses 25 and 26, where God gives a promise, that new covenant promise of salvation where He says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's it. It's salvation. It's what we need. We need that change of status, that change of heart, the purification that God can provide through faith in Christ This is one of the many great and necessary blessings that is yours when you come to salvation in Christ. A purified soul. But this isn't our goal. We're not going to stop here. Remember, our our goal, our destination is to get to this command in in verse 22. To love one another. But Peter starts us off with this salvation status. He's first things first. This is your salvation. This is what happens to you. This is your status. It's what he's showing us. So this is not our final destination. Let's keep moving now through this verse, verse 22. Let's come now to the second salvation aspect to get you to love. Salvation's means. First you had salvation status. Now salvation's means, which are obedience to the truth. Obedience to the truth, salvation's means. Look again at verse 22. He says, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. So again, understand Peter's train of thought. He's giving us this command to love one another. That's the main point here, but in typical fashion, he's showing us how everything, even this command to love, is built off of our salvation. So first, we have this new status that salvation brings, purified souls. Now he's telling us the means of of that salvation, how we get the salvation. And he calls it obedience to the truth. Verse 22. You have purified your souls. How? In obedience to the truth. Now, wait a second. He says the word obedience. Now, does that mean we're talking work salvation here? Why doesn't he say belief in the truth? I mean, that's all you have to do be saved, right? Just believe some stuff. John 3.16, just believe and you're saved, right? Well, first understand, yes, you are saved by grace through faith alone, apart from works, Titus 3.5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. So you can't work your way to heaven. Your, your good works count for nothing. The door is only opened by trusting in Christ alone. But here's the thing. For you to have faith in Jesus is not mutually exclusive from obeying Jesus. In fact, the Bible treats believing Jesus and obeying Jesus as synonyms. To believe is to obey. Now, don't misunderstand. Even our ability to have faith is a gift from God. But the gospel makes truth claims that place demands on you you either obey and accept these truth claims and live accordingly, or you don't. But this is why John can say, 1 John 3.23, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. And this is why Jesus can say, John 6.29, Jesus said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. In fact, though you may not know this, the Bible actually often interchanges believing the gospel with obeying the gospel. Just, just listen to this. You don't have to turn. Just listen along. John three thirty six. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8. Jesus will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Hebrews 5.9 And having been made perfect, He, Jesus, became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. It doesn't say believe. It says obey. Do this. Turn with me to Romans. Romans chapter 1. I want to show you just a few more instances of this. And it's so significant that it comes from the book of Romans. Romans, it's the pinnacle book in the New Testament, teaching salvation by faith alone. Yet Paul himself uses this terminology of obeying the gospel in Romans, which is very significant. So look at this, chapter 1, verse 5. Speaking of Jesus, he says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. He's saying faith faith does not preclude or exclude obedience. Faith does not preclude or exclude obedience. Turn to chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, look at verses 16 and 17. It says, Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Verse 17, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. That's a good definition of faith right there. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching. There's a heart obedience here, a heart submission that the gospel requires to be made effective. It's not just some wishy-washy belief. There's a heart obedience that's part of faith. One more. Romans 16. Last chapter, Romans 16. Verse 26. We'll catch it midway. 16:26. He says, And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to what? To obedience of faith. There it is again. Obedience of faith. Here's the deal. If you're not following, I'll break it down for you, make it very simple. The point that Paul makes, the point that Peter's making, the point that Jesus made, is that a faith that saves is a faith that obeys. That's it. A faith that saves is a faith that obeys. Conversion It's not just an intellectual exercise. It's a transformation of the entire being, and that cannot be separated from a change in your will, a change in your actions, a change in your obedience. They're one and the same. Intellectual assent to the gospel that is not matched by a change in will, a change in behavior. It's a false faith. If you call upon Jesus as Savior, but you refuse to call him Lord, it's a false faith. You may say, yeah, you know, i believe in Jesus. Sounds nice. I don't want to go to hell. So I'll, I'll believe in this Jesus guy, but I don't want to actually change my life. I don't want to give up my sins. I don't want to repent. I don't want to live like he says. I don't want to get all radical here. It's a false faith. You're not saved by works. But a saving faith is a faith that obeys. That's just part of the definition of saving faith. It's just in, inherent. It's not enough not enough to to hear the truth, to recite the truth, to agree with the truth, even to assent to the truth, not enough. You must also obey the truth. How many churchgoers? I won't call them Christians, but how many churchgoers? They go to church, they sit in the pews, they listen attentively, they nod their heads, they go home feeling good because they went to church. At least they feel better than those non-churchgoers over there and Although they they hear the word, and maybe they even agree with the word, they don't practice it. They don't obey it. Guess what? They're unbelievers. They're still lost. In fact, they're worse off than people who don't go to church. And that's the exact point that James makes in James chapter 2. He says that type of faith, it's, it's called a dead faith. Not a saving faith, a dead faith. I'm not arguing for perfection, for sinlessness. We know that's not possible. But if you refuse to even submit to the truth, you're lost. So the means to salvation, it's believing the truth and obeying the truth, which are really one and the same. So do you obey Christ? Have you submitted to the truth in faith, a faith that expresses commitment to God's ways? God's not mocked. If you go on living contrary to everything you pretend to believe, you're you're disgracing the cross of Christ. And God won't let that continue for long. Again, you're not going to be perfect overnight. You're not going to be perfect in this life. But a true belief and believer is submitted to the gospel, submitted to Christ, and is moving in the direction of greater holiness and greater obedience True faith leads to obedience. That's our second point. The means of salvation. True faith leads to obedience. It's really part and parcel with obedience. You know what else true faith leads to? Love. This brings us to our third salvation aspect. We start with salvation status and we become purified in soul. We have salvation's means. The salvation comes to us when we place an obeying faith in Jesus. Now we can move on. Number three, salvation's result. Salvation's result, which is a brotherly love. Salvation's result now. Brotherly love. Here we come to one of the directions salvation points us in, which is love. You have, he says, verse 22. Back to First Peter, you know, verse 22. You have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for what? for a sincere love of the brethren. You are saved, in large part, to love others. This becomes a natural tendency of the new heart, of those saved and purified, a sincere love for others. And after conversion, you're, you're placed into this body, the body of Christ, and so you actually develop a special love for the brethren as well. This word Peter uses for love here, it's Philadelphia. You know it in the Greek brotherly love. There, there's an affection to this love. There's a warmth to this love. And when it comes to loving others in the church, the idea is not you know love as if they were your brothers and sisters. It's love because they are your brothers and sisters. That's the idea. And furthermore, he says this love is to be sincere. The word for sincere in the Greek is anuhipiketry which is a negative of which is a word for hypocrite or hypocrisy to be sincere means to be without hypocrisy the word for hypocrite in the Greek it was originally used to describe actors wearing a mask in a play just portraying someone else That's, that was a hypocrite being a hypocrite meant being someone who pretended to be someone else or who acted like someone else that's pretty much what hypocrite means today. You pretend to be one way. That's not, how really, that's not how you really are, though. You're two-faced. The point he's making is, this hypocrisy should never describe your love. Your love for the brethren. It should be sincere. For it to be true love, it must be sincere, without ulterior motives, pure. You know, for example... You can buy your wife all the flowers you want. If you're doing it because you feel obligated, like it's some chore you have to do, it's not sincere love. It's a hypocritical love. Or say, you know, you see a homeless person outside of 7-Eleven asking for food. Normally, you just walk right by them. You just ignore them. But today, your friends are in from out of town. They're with you. So you want to look good in front of them. So you go ahead and you buy them some food. Not a sincere love. That's a hypocritical love. If your loving actions are ever externally driven by guilt or pressure or compulsion, pride, whatever, it's not a sincere, true love. Instead, God calls you to love others from the heart, from a heart which has been changed by a loving God. God saved you to love others. God changed your heart and enabled you to love others. God himself showed you The greatest love in the universe. So, if after all this you still do not show love to others, guess what? You have not received God's saving love. Get this point? Other than loving God, literally the most important thing that God calls you to do is to love others. It's just number one on the list, other than loving God. It's such a significant and fundamental part of the Christian life that the Bible uses it as a litmus test of true salvation. You know what a litmus test is? If you, if you have a swimming pool or if you grew up or if you took you know high school chemistry, you know what a litmus test is? We had a swimming pool growing up, so I learned about this. It's a test that, for, for one example, it shows you the condition of your pool. You take a little piece of litmus paper, you dip it in your pool. If it turns red... It's overly acidic. You probably want to add some water to dilute it. If the paper turns blue, it's overly basic. You want to add some chlorine. That's it. It's a litmus test. It shows you the condition of your pool. And today, though, we can call any test that shows your true colors a litmus test. And here's the thing. According to Scripture, your love for other people is a litmus test. It's a test of your true salvation. And it really is that simple. If a love for others, is habitually or characteristically absent from your life. We're talking about the pattern of your life. You're not saved. You've never been born again. You've never been changed by God. For otherwise, you would love. It really is that simple. And loving others really is that important. I want to prove this to you. Don't, Don't take my word for it. Turn to First John, just a few pages to the right here, First John. We're going to do a quick survey of First John. I want to show you this, just point blank. I want to show you how seriously God takes your love for others and the consequences, or really the reality of someone who doesn't love, not the consequences, just the, the true reality of someone who doesn't love. First John, chapter 2, we'll start at verse 9. Let's talk about hatred first. First, John chapter 2, starting verse 9. The one who says he is in the light. That's a claim of salvation. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. You're not in the light. You're not saved. Verse 10. The one who loves his brother abides in the light there's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Well, you say, that's not that clear. I mean, can you do better than that? Well, chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 10. You tell me how plain this is. Chapter 3, verse 10. By this, the children of God... And the children of the devil are obvious. We're talking obvious here. It's obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. There it is. It's obvious. If you don't practice righteousness, if you don't love your brother, you're a child. Of Satan. Still, you've never been born again. We're not talking that you're, you're perfect. No one's perfect. We're talking about the habit of your life, the course of your life. We all will stumble into unrighteousness, into unloving behavior. But for the person who just lives there without repentance, without change, they're just characterized by lack of righteousness, lack of love. You're not saved. Chapter 3, verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14. We know... That we have passed out of death into life. Because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. He's not talking about how you're saved here. He's talking about how you know you're saved. Verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brethren. That's the fruit on the tree that gives evidence of a new heart. Chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So that phrase, born of God, that's John's way of saying born again, born from above. Same thing. Verse 8, the one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. It's just plain and simple. I mean, what, you think I'm done? Verse 11. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let's finish it off. Chapter 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. How's he a liar? He's lying when he says he loves God. He doesn't love God. Because if you did love God, you wouldn't hate your brother. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For... The one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. This commandment we have from Him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. It really just—and that's just First John. It really is just an overwhelming point in Scripture. It's just a flood of texts. When God saves, when God saves you, He changes the very fabric of your being, such that your heart now just. Overflows in love. It's just how it works. And so if this love is absent, it's very simple. You have not ever had a change of heart that comes in salvation. So let me ask you again this morning. Do you have a brotherly love? Are you loving others? This is an important question. If these passages from 1 John strike a chord in your heart, perhaps it's time to examine your salvation. If you are known, if you are characterized by a lack of love for others, then something's wrong. Repent. Look to God's love. Start loving others. None of us will be perfect. We have God's grace. Thank God for God's grace because we all fall short. Don't be discouraged. But repent and seek to grow in that love for others. Back to 1 Peter. So you see, this is the train of thought that Peter's driving at. He's saying, first... Here's salvation. Second, here's how you get salvation. Third, here's what salvation leads to. Brotherly love. salvation's status. Salvation's means. Salvation's results. If you get all this, if you're tracking along, if you get the train, then now we're ready for the final destination, so to speak. The final stop. The command. Now we get finally to salvation's command. That's number four. Salvation's command and you guess what it is? Love one another. First Peter 1.22, back there again. Salvation's command, love one another. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, and here we have it, fervently love one another from the heart. Like I said earlier, other than loving God, Literally, the greatest commandment you have is to love one another. You put those two together love God, love one another. That's it. That's the entire Old Testament law, Christ said. Just sums it up. That's what it is. The end of verse 22, Peter switches it up. He switches from the word Philadelphia to the word agapao, which is another Greek word for love. But the emphasis on this is that we're called to show love that it's not based on feelings, so it's not a love of, of feelings and emotion. This is a love of the will. It's a decision that you have to make. This word for love, it does not focus on the lovability of the other person. It doesn't matter how lovable or unlovable they are. They could be a wretched person. This love shows love anyway. It's a love of the will. It's a determination to love others no matter what. This is why this type of love can be commanded. You can't really command someone to... To love their enemy in the sense of feeling warm and fuzzy about them. But you can command someone to love their enemy in in the sense of choosing to promote their well-being. And that's what this is. You must choose to love others, regardless of who they are, regardless of what they have done to you. Remembering, that's how God loved us. We were sinners. We were evil. We were his enemies. We hated him. And his wrath Fumed against us. But he still chose to love us. And he showed us this love in sending Christ to die for us. And that's what we're to do. To love others in the same manner. Notice here in 1 Peter, this love is to have the right motive. He says, fervently love one another from the heart. There it is again, from the heart. Today we think of the heart as the center of Emotions. That is totally not how they thought of the heart in biblical times. Rather, they thought of the heart as the center of everything. It's your entire being. It's your mission control center. And today when NASA launches a shuttle, it's this huge, complex operation. It's all controlled in one room. Mission control center. That's your heart. It's your mission control center. It's the control center for your entire being. The Bible uses our heart to represent the center of our intellect, emotion, and will. Obviously, we're not talking about the physical organ in our body. We're talking about the inner person, just who you are as an inner being. Your love for others must come from the heart, from your inner being, from your entire self in a sincere way. He also says in verse 22, this love has to be in the right manner, namely fervently. Word in the Greek pictures something being stretched to its limit. Fervently, that's what it is. Something being stretched to its limit. Olympics are coming up. let so picture an Olympic sprinter. He's doing the 100-meter dash, and just every muscle in his leg is just being stretched to the limit. Every single one. That's the that's the image here. We're talking full capacity, maxed out to the limit. That should be your love. That should be how your love is described. Your love for others should be to the max at full capacity. You should fervently overflow in your love for others. That's the picture. So really, that's that's it. It's pretty simple. You know, We've got the command, love one another, the right motive from the heart, the right manner, fervently. That's pretty much it. There's not much more explaining we can do here. It's simple. You get it. It's really just up to you to do it, to live it out. To make this command a way of life. Now I know some of you are going to be sitting out there asking, how? You know I get it. I understand. Okay, it, you know it's pretty simple. Love one another fervently from the heart. Now, and I want to do it. I want to grow in my love. I want to excel. I want to do better by God's grace. How? How do I do this? What does it look like? How can I grow in my love for others? I want to help you with this as our final consideration this morning. If you want to grow in your love for one another, I want you to think of two words, giving and sacrifice, giving and sacrifice, because love involves both. Biblically, i us start with giving. The concept of loving, it's very close to giving. The concept of loving in the Bible, it's very close to giving. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Loving involves giving. Loving also involves sacrifice, You got John 3.16. We also have 1 John 3.16. God didn't just give his son, he sacrificed his son. 1 John 3.16, we know love like, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Jesus didn't love us by, you know, feeling warm and fuzzy feelings for us. He loved us by sacrificing and giving his own life for us. Loving is giving. Loving is sacrifice. That's what you need to do. Biblically, you could say, love is sacrificially giving people what they truly need. It's a good basic definition for love. Love is sacrificially giving people what they truly need. Don't forget the last part, what they truly need. Love is sacrificially giving people what they truly need. This is what God did for us. He sacrificially gave us salvation. We can likewise meet the needs of others. So what you have to do now is ask yourself, how can you do this? How can you give others what they need most, even at great personal cost? How can you sacrificially give? And start by asking yourself, well, what do other people need? What do the people around me need most? Start with that question. What do they need most? And start with your kids. Start with this. Good example. Your kids. Your kids, what do they need most? It's not, it's not candy. It's not fun and games. It's not entertainment. That stuff is fine. But what they need most is biblical instruction and discipline. But that takes a huge time investment. And if you're really going to train your kids well, according to the Bible, you're not going to be able to do all the things you want to do. That takes a lot of time. But this is love. Love. Will you love your kids by sacrificing your time, your agenda, your hobbies, in order to give them what they need most? That's what we're talking about here. Same goes for your spouse. Your spouse needs affection, attention, prayer, encouragement, kindness, shepherding, sometimes rest. So in a similar manner, how can you put their interests first? That's what we're talking about here. You had a long day either at home or at work, or your spouse did. It's just a long day. Seeing that, you realize that they have some needs at hand. They need some rest. They need some help. They need a hand around the house. So sacrifice your time, your energy, and help them. Take some of the burden off their shoulders. You know, it may not be your job to mow the lawn or do the dishes or cook or clean, whatever. But as you observe what one another needs... Both of you really should be competing to sacrificially serve one another. That's the picture of love. It's a dying to self. It's a putting others first. I want to broaden this out. I want to think more broadly in the context of the church, not just the family. It's command to love one another. Imagine one week you hear that someone at church needs a ride to a special event. You don't really know them, and and they live pretty far away. In fact, for you to give them a ride, it would be... It'd be a huge inconvenience. You'd have to really drive out every way just to give them a ride. But will you sacrifice your plans and your convenience to give them what they really need? Love by sacrificially giving. Do you get the point? Sacrifice, giving, that's what it's about. Now maybe there's another person who's, you know, they're gonna have an event at their house, and they really need people to come early and clean and help set up. You know, that's going to cut into your time to watch the game, though. and You've got some errands to run. Love by sacrificially giving. And then there's that other person at church. You know, no one really talks to you. They're kind of strange. You don't really like how they dress. You don't like how they talk. But you know, that they're lonely. They need a friend. They need someone to talk to. They need encouragement. So even though they're not the type of person you would normally hang out with, will you sacrifice your comfort zone? to give them what they really need? Love by sacrificially giving. Maybe the church itself has a work day coming up or just has a need for someone to come early on Sunday mornings to help cleaning. That would mean you'd have to wake up an extra half hour on Sunday mornings, though. And then you'd have to do work. I mean, Sunday, it's your weekend. It's supposed to be your day off. Will you sacrifice your rest to give others what they really need? Love by sacrificially giving. Now let's talk money. You hear that so-and-so in the church is going through a rough financial time. You know, they made some poor financial decisions, but they're trying to get back on track. You say to yourself, well, serves them right for spending all their money and not saving. But will you sacrifice your money to give them what they truly need? You know, we're not talking about Letting someone be a financial leech off of you in an irresponsible way. But if someone has genuine needs, we love them. Love by sacrificially giving. Think about this one. Imagine if there is someone at church who always played on his cell phone during the music worship. What does that person need? Biblically, that person needs to be lovingly reproved and rebuked for his actions He's distracting from worship and his own heart is not in the right place. But you feel really uncomfortable pulling him aside. You don't want to do that. It's awkward for you. Will you sacrifice your comfort to give him what he really needs? Love by sacrificially giving. Or maybe you know of that believer who's having a hard time at work, hard time at home. They're being poorly treated, they're being persecuted. You can see that they're getting weary. They just need someone to to come alongside of them, to throw their arm around them, to to carry them, to encourage them, to bless them. Will you be that person? Will you go out of the way for them? Yeah, but that means you actually have to get involved in someone's life. You know, I I just like to come to church, get my fix, and just leave right away. I don't actually want to get involved. Will you sacrifice your Sunday lunch to give someone what they need? Love by sacrificially giving. list goes on, doesn't it? We could keep going. But get the picture and get the application. God calls you to love, and most of the time this looks like sacrificially giving. That's what it is. That's what people need. So first, be on the lookout for what people need. Second, meet those needs by sacrificially giving. Time, money, energy, whatever. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. And if you're struggling with loving others this morning, you need to look to God, look to Christ, look to the cross, and remember the love that you were shown if you have indeed received that love. And if you've been born again, this will compel you to love others. You can't help it. The more you remember the cross, the more you remember how God sacrificially gave to you, the more you're going to be led to do the same for others. If you've got a spiritual pulse, you're going to have a hard time just coldly turning your heart away from others if you've been saved. So leave here today remembering this second greatest command to love one another and renew your commitment to put into action. We fall short, but just resolve to do better. Look to the cross for fresh motivation Look to your surroundings for needs to meet and then love by sacrificially giving. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we love you because indeed you first loved us. You sacrificially gave your son to us. And so we stop, we thank you and praise you for the love we've been shown. Thank you for this love, Lord, that transforms our lives, That that gives us life and hope and faith and a future in you, salvation. I pray now we would likewise love others as we have been loved. This is how the world knows the church is true, that Christ is true by our love for others, our love for the world. And this is how we love you, by loving others. So instill in us, Lord, a greater desire, a greater resolve to love others. Help our hearts to overflow with, with just your love that we would just abound in loving kindness toward one another. Bless us as we go from here. May Breen Church truly be a community known as a loving, faithful body of Christ. And may the people around us be taken aback by it, be struck by it, where they want to know what's the source of their love. How can they be so loving in a world like this? What's different about them? That they may know Come to know the love of Christ themselves. Give us this, Lord, help us to to fulfill this ourselves, to love you, to love others. In your name we pray. Amen.